Hello, welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dina Burley, founder and CEO of Project Purple and the host of the Project Purple Podcast. We have another interview for you coming up with a very special guest after a few quick updates. The Project Purple Podcast has surpassed over 100,000 downloads. So excited. Uh, when we started this podcast over six years ago, I didn't, we didn't have a number in mind. And now that we've surpassed 100,000, it's just really, really special. So we want to thank all of our guests for allowing us to share their journeys and all of you for listening to what we've been putting out. So thank you so much for making the Project Purple Podcast the success that it has become. 2023 was a record year for us. And already um, we are almost uh, a quarter through or, or through the first quarter, I should say, 2024. And we are already on pace for another record year. And I just want to say thank you to everyone who made 2023 so special for us, the supporters, the people who donated, or those that participated in a Project Purple event. Speaking of 2024, we've already launched many of our 2024 run teams. And exciting news, we're back in the Boston Marathon as an official charity partner. This now makes us the official charity partner of the five largest world marathons. Many of our other 2024 races will be launching very soon, like the New York City Marathon, Intent. Uh, our virtual event series is back uh, here in March. We are uh, back with our Purple Patties virtual event for the third straight year. For those local to the Connecticut area, our second annual charity, or excuse me, our fourth annual charity golf classic is happening on Monday, June 3rd. Uh, we're excited to bring that back uh, for its fourth year. To learn more about all these great events, visit our website at projectpurple.org and make sure to follow us on social media to stay up to date on all things Project Purple. Without further ado, let's meet our special guest coming to us from sunny and beautiful San Diego, Dr. Ezra Cohen, MD, Chief Medical Officer of Oncology at Tempest AI. Ezra, thank you for joining us here on the Project Purple podcast. Thanks, Dina. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So before I hand the mic over to you, I just want to read your bio here. We're excited to have you on here. Um, as I mentioned before we hit record, we do bring specialists from the cancer space on often, uh, not necessarily focused just in pancreatic cancer, but I know um, the folks from Tempest, we've been talking to you guys for a while now uh, about bringing someone on to talk. And I'm excited to have someone uh, at your level here and, and your expertise on the podcast uh, before you got to Tempest AI, you were recently the chief of division of hemat hemat say this ten times in a row division of hemat uh, hematology. There we go, Hematom hematology oncology, as well as the associate director of clinical science at UC San Diego UCSD Morris Cancer Center. Dr. Cohen also led the Precision Immunotherapy Clinic and co-directed the San Diego Center for Precision Immunotherapy at UCSD. Before UCSD, Dr. Cohen spent 15 years at the University of Chicago, where he was the co-director of the Head and Neck Cancer Center, as well as the Hematology Oncology Fellowship Program Director. Thank you for joining us here at the Project Purple Podcast. Yeah, again, uh, uh, thank you. And, and yeah, happy to talk about what's going on, uh, both in, in research and, and certainly in Tempest. Now, I know we were talking, as we said before, you're based in San Diego. You were in Chicago for 15 years, almost a lifer. I guess we could say for, I wouldn't say lifer, but for a very long period of time. Let me put you on the spot here. 
what's the biggest thing that you miss about Chicago? And what's the thing that you don't miss about Chicago? Chicago is a wonderful city. There's so many things, uh, truly, I, I do miss about it. Uh, I think that the best thing about Chicago, and, and I, I like cities, I like living in a city, uh, is it's um, it, everything's doable. Uh, there's great culture, there's great museums, theater, restaurants, uh, the, uh, in the summertime, the outdoor events. And I, I, I did live in New York for some time, and, and no knock on New York, but for New York, things are a little bit harder to access, both yeah. in terms of logistically getting to the event and, of course, paying for whatever it is. And Chicago just is, it's its easy, to, it's much easier to do stuff, especially for a city its size. So, so really, really miss that. Uh, uh, don't miss March uh, when <laughs> it's still cold, it's still gray, and you're just wondering, <laughs> when is this winter going to be over? But yeah. you know what? That first spring day comes, and all of a sudden, your attitude completely changes, and yeah. you forget about the last six months, and you're, yeah, you know, enjoying enjoying the city again. I, I, you know, I love Chicago. I know we we were talking about this before. It, you know, Chicago is probably one of my favorite big cities to go to, and you, and you nailed it right there, right? Like it's it's very accessible, but the weather is just like you know. I've been there. I remember I was there in like 2018. And it was like 30 below or 40 below yeah. and, and living in <laughs> Connecticut, like it gets cold, but it's not that cold. And I remember just being there. And I, I think I had to buy like a scarf because I didn't have, I had a hat, but you know, your face is still exposed and you know, Chicagoans know, like you got to like dress appropriately. I think that's the key to getting through it. But yeah, <laughs> the winters brutal. are brutal, <laughs> absolutely brutal. Well, thank you for sharing that those two tidbits there on Chicago. Let's talk a little bit about what you're doing now at Tempest AI and talk a little bit about maybe a little bit about your background, and then we'll get into some questions about what you guys are doing. Yeah, great. Really, my, my background and, and honestly, the reason I even went into oncology in the first place ties in so well with what we're doing now at Tempest and, and the reason I went to Tempest. If, if you'll allow me, let me go back uh a couple of decades. And really the reason I got into oncology was from uh, doing palliative care as a family physician. I, I trained to be a, a family physician and my dream in medical school was to go to a small town and, and do everything and, and you know do deliver babies, do minor surgeries, work in the emergency room. And I did all that. And as part of my practice, I was also doing palliative care and, and home hospice. And it was during the home hospice experience that I really began asking sort of those critical questions, um, the why questions of, of why did this person get this disease at this time? And why didn't their treatments work? You know, as you can imagine, hospice, all of our patients were unfortunately close to death. 95% of our patients were, were cancer patients. And, and I really began to get interested in oncology and its biology and, and the mechanisms and, and, and realized that, boy, we were we were so unadvanced. We were just so unsophisticated when it came to um, cancer, what we knew and how we treated it. Now, this is going back more than two decades. Actually, I dare say almost three decades. I'm aging myself, but, and I don't mean to be pejorative in all the work that had been done to get to that point. It was, you know, you have to understand this was before sequencing. This was before the appreciation of the human genome. Um, we were doing, uh, as a research community, the best that we could back at that time. This was, I, I'm talking about the early 90s. 
And to think of back about how far we've come is just really extraordinary in, in that time period. Um, but personally, I, I thought this is what I wanted to do. Uh, I became a physician to help people and oncology just seemed to me like the greatest need uh, at the time in medicine. And so I retrained, I went back and did an internal medicine and then did my oncology fellowship at the University of Chicago, as you mentioned, and, and then stayed there for the next 15 years. And, um, and, and throughout that time, I always felt like the key to treating a cancer patient was finding out exactly what made their cancer function and grow. Because if we think about it, um, it, cancer is really a, um, it's a chaotic world uh, with the alterations and mutations that are present, the metabolic needs for growth and to, you know, to keep up with all the um, uh, debris really uh, that, that a cancer cell uh, uh, creates. At, and at the same time, the growth demands on a cancer uh, a, a cancer has to function in, in specific ways. And if we can decipher that, in addition to figuring out how the host is responding to the cancer, then I truly believed we could find a solution for every patient with malignancy, with a, with a cancer diagnosis. And then um, as I began to first um, use Tempest. And, and of course, Tempest was started in Chicago. I, mm. I knew some of the people that's the, the, that started it. I knew the first scient chief scientific officer very well. He had a laboratory just a couple of floors above mine at, at University of Chicago. And, um, and as Tempest evolved, uh, I realized that uh, Tempest was doing what I wanted to do on a grand scale, on a population scale. Uh, to, with this mission of finding the right treatment for the right patient at the right time. And, and that's, that's really what we do. Uh, we create uh, tools for uh, providers and for life science companies who are developing drugs and other products um, to make those perfect matches so that um, cancer doesn't have to be, you know, that, that devastating diagnosis or that frightening word that people hear and it stops them in their tracks. It, it shouldn't be. And, and I truly believe that our generation has the mandate to make that difference. It's so fascinating. And, and like everything you said, like, I'm not, you know, for those, I don't know if our audience will see me, but I'm nodding here. And it's just so wild. I mean, first of all, thank you for doing this. Um, you know, and, and for going down that path, cause you probably could have been very, it sounded like, you know, you, you were very successful in that one space and then you decide to shift. And I'm always kind of curious, you know, was that shift? And this is first question here, uh, just talking about your background. Was, do you ever look back? Like hindsight's always 2020, but was there a patient or was there a time when you just said, Hey, I've had enough. Like this is we get we we have the means to your point. Like we're we're in a place now where we we have the ability to to find better outcomes for this. So was there a person there, or there a was, case that there, was like yeah, there there was and there have been um there have been several along the way, but but the one that the one patient that triggered it all for me was uh, a woman I was seeing in hospice, and this was home hospice. So 
we would actually go to the person's home and, uh, you know, look at their environment, uh, try to, you know, put things into the house that um, improve the quality of life as much as possible. This was a woman, she's 33 years old, okay, uh, dying of ovarian cancer. Uh, she had exhausted all therapies, all available therapies at the time. Uh, and uh, and she had four children. And you go to the house and the, her whole family's there. Uh, the kids, and and I think the youngest was, I, I think, about four years old, something like that. A, a, you know, a young child. Her husband's there. And and that's when I it really, it really struck me. It really hit home because here was a woman. I was at that age at, at the time. We were, you know, almost the almost the same age. And uh, and I just thought this this shouldn't happen. This this is terrible. Uh, I'm, and, and I'm you know using um, uh, colloquialisms uh, to to express you know a, a grave situation because um, cancer shouldn't end the life of a 33 year old woman of four um, a woman with four children. Not only does it you know um, obviously affect the the person who has the disease, but her four kids are are going to grow up without a mother. Uh, her husband is going to grow up without a wife. Her her parents, her brothers, sisters, uh, the entire community, and it's just it's just devastating. And and that was the that was the one patient where I really thought, um, I want to do more. I, I want to get, I want to see patients in a different part of this process, not when they have just a few weeks to live, but um, when science and medicine can really do something to change the course of this person's life and this person's disease. So powerful. So then why the move over to Tempest? Yeah. And, and so, so um, I was in academic medicine for over 20 years and uh, had a lab, independent laboratory. I was uh, doing a lot of translational and clinical research. Uh, you know, you mentioned the precision immunotherapy clinic and, and, uh, um, and, and was, was doing, you know, academically was doing great, you know, fully funded grants, uh, successful career. And, um, and then Eric, uh, who the CEO, Eric, uh, Lestowski, the, Lestowski, the, uh, CEO of, uh, Tempest, uh, approached me, uh, and said, cause I've been working with Tempest for a while, um, had even been consulting with them. And, um, he said, Hey, the chief medical officer role just opened up at, at Tempest. Would you be interested? And, and, um, at first I thought, well, I, you know, it seems like a, like a interesting job, but I'm, I'm doing pretty well and really have no reason to, to, uh, leave academics. Uh, I'm really enjoying what I'm doing. Um, but then I started talking more and more, uh, with Eric, with other people at the company. And I realized that Tempest has, has gathered, um, the greatest database for cancer in the world. Uh, and I, I don't say that light, lightly, that is, that is the truth. Um, it, it is now, it's about a hundred and, it's almost 200 petabytes of data. Um, for, for listeners that know what uh, TCGA is, uh, um, you'll appreciate this. Uh, TCGA essentially was the effort by the NCI, terrific effort to really begin to catalog molecularly every cancer that we have. And, and pancreatic cancer, of course, is one of the cohorts. So TCGA took about 500 cases from each cancer 
and they um, fully sequenced them um, and uh, really began to answer critical questions about the biology of, of each uh, cancer type. We have 200 times, 200 times more data than TCGA. And with that level, with those, you know, with that amount of data, you be can begin to ask critical questions. And uh, not only do we have these, um, the genomics and the transcriptomics of these, but we have information on T-cell receptor, B-cell receptor, on tumor microenvironment. And of course, we know what happened to these patients uh, clinically. And so um, that's when, you know, sort of the, the light bulb went off and I, and I thought, oh boy, like I, I can do things with, we can do things as a company that I never even dreamed of. Yeah. And, and I think like, so for the listeners at home, it's, and I know this is like, and I'll stay in my lane in terms of pancreatic cancer. Like there's no roadmap. And my mom was, my mom's a two-time breast cancer survivor. And this is part of, I'll share my family frustration here with cancer. And, you know, we've had many cancers in the family. We just have a high propensity and we also have the BRCA gene to, to boot as well. Right. So we, we've got that against us, but when we look at roadmaps, right, and and there isn't a roadmap in pancreatic cancer, and I think that's one of the biggest frustrations, you know, with with the space is that you know why does someone do very well on fluoronox, but then you have another patient that does really bad, and then you know yesterday the news the FDA just approved this new frontline medication. It's seen it's you know giving people two more months. Uh, which is a big victory in the pancreatic cancer space. Um, but this roadmap, which like you look at breast cancer, like my mom, she had it in 01 and then in 2016, and the roadmap was there. You know, they told her what to do, what types of treatments, what to expect, what outcomes. Um, and, and I'm not, breast cancer is still a very bad, I, all cancers are bad, right? But I think, again, to stay in my lane, you know, this roadmap and and to have this amount of data is really critical, right? Like it's it's the end all be all of how we can crack this thing for all diseases. It, it oh, absolutely. That's so. You, the last statement you made is is absolutely true. So what um, what we realize now, and you know, we use the term AI uh, now very very loosely. <laughs> I think every yeah. company now is an AI company, yeah. one way or another. In a sense, you know, we have to be. Uh, but but really, it's it's about what we can do with big data now that we have the ability uh a to collect and store it uh so you know that that's really only over the last decade uh but b to use uh, uh, uh language learning models uh, uh computational tools to uh, integrate and and begin to um really interrogate um uh, large data uh, now we have the tools to be able to ask those critical questions, uh, you know, simply. So we had to get to this point. Right. Uh, so um, you go back 15 years. Um, we couldn't sequence a genome mm -hmm. efficiently. OK, uh, so we didn't even know what made, uh, you know, cancer tick. We didn't even know the alterations. Uh, then you go to now being able to, you know, a point where you can routinely uh, um, sequence a genome, but then you have to begin to understand um, what those genes mean. And then you get to um, uh, things like transcriptome and prote proteomics and other uh, tools to really understand the molecular phenotype of a cancer. 
Um, and now you've got uh, tons and tons of data. So what do you what do you do with it? Uh, and and so um, all of these things had to develop. You know, we needed time to to develop the technologies to be able to begin to ask these questions. Um, and and there's more technology, of course, that's going to be developed and, and it's going to come. But now we're at a point where we can begin to to really address uh, key questions. Let, let me circle back to pancreatic cancer in just a minute. The other thing that's happening before I do that is the pace of advancement is also accelerating. So it's not we're not going at a linear pace where one advance is happening after another. Um, we're actually making discoveries at an even faster rate, which is really exciting, which means, you know, at a decade um, when I first started in medicine um, isn't, you know, what we did in a decade, uh, we can do really 10 times as much right now in that same period of time, which is, which is terrific. Pancreatic cancer is one of those cancers where um, there isn't as much low hanging fruit, unfortunately. And, and, and one of the reasons there are many reasons why pancreatic cancer is challenging, and, and uh, you don't need me to tell you it's it's one of the most challenging, if not the most challenging, cancer uh, we face: uh, pancreatic adenocarcinoma. Um, but uh, there isn't as much low-hanging fruit. So, and what I mean by that is, um, we we've sort of now uh, gone past the era where um, we can find a molecular alteration, usually a mutation, and it's easily targetable. Um, we're now at a point where we have found almost all of those, not all of those. There's still some to be discovered, especially um, what we call fusion events that are a little bit harder to see. Um, and now, and some of them a little bit harder to target, but, but we're, we're, we're sort of now progressing beyond that where um, it started with lung cancer and EGFR mutations. And we discovered that, EGFR inhibitors worked exquisitely well. And, and then we went on to find the next one and the next one and the next one. Unfortunately, pancreatic cancer doesn't have a lot of those. A few patients with pancreatic cancer do have those. It's, it's not uh, a universal no, but the majority don't. And so now we have to go one level farther um, and, and ask, okay, with the genome that we have in front of us, um, how can we interpret the, these data to come up with the best uh, treatment. And, and in fact, we do have, you mentioned fulfirinox, uh, and, and as you know, there are two major treatments for first-line pancreatic cancer, and we do have an algorithm that can help providers, we being Tempest, has an algorithm that can help providers decide, well, should I pick fulfirinox or should I pick uh, gem uh, abraxane as the mm -hmm. first choice? And, and I, again, I, you don't need me to tell you, that first decision is a critical one for pancreatic right. cancer patients because you don't have, for most people, you don't have a ton of time. Uh, but, but those are the kind of things that now we can begin to do as, as we use the, the newer technologies to um, uh, interrogate data. Um, and then further than that, we can, of course, we're now in the age of immunotherapy uh, for cancer, and we can begin to understand the uh, the tumor microenvironment, the host, um, how these the cancer and the immune system interact, and um, although uh, there have been uh, greater strides made in other cancers, uh, but we're beginning to to think about pancreatic cancer as well as a val valid target for immunotherapy and, and beginning to make 
I would small steps to start, but we're but at least it's it's starting. And and again, the technologies that are available allow us to begin to to understand that at a much deeper level. Yeah, I think something you just said is is very powerful, and and I caught it because um, I have it. I have my notes here, and I wrote something down before. And you said this a, a couple times here, um, Ezra, with this evolution of technology and advances and this roadmap. I use the term roadmap, right? And the, all this great work that you guys are doing at Tempest because you have the data, right? There, there's this book. Um, I forget the author here. If I look on the bookshelf, it's called, I think it's called The Death of Cancer. Um, and it, it was a gentleman, he was at Yale for a while as an oncologist. And he talked about, you know, the, this idea of, of cancer being eliminated, right? And, you know, I think in, in today's society, like everyone, you know, it's either white or, it, you know, it's like either one side or the other side, right? They're like, there's no in between. Um, and I think, you know, segue, like, I think we've got to find a way to manage, right? Manage cancer, I always try to say, because I, I don't, I try to be a realist. Like, I don't think we're just going to get rid of cancers. Um, but if we can find ways to manage it and, you know, to get, but my point here in this book, he talked about like leukemia and 30 years ago, leukemia had like a survival rate of like, you know, it was like 5%. Yes. It was like, it's awful. Right. And yeah. they did all these treatments and, you know, now leukemia has, you know, a, a very high success rate, right. Given the protocol that they have. So do you think like, we're at this like really interesting time. And you said like, we're not making like these linear jumps, but we're making these massive jumps where we can take a decade's worth of work and that decade's worth of work may happen in six months. And I'm just throwing that out there just as an example here. But like, this is just a lifespan of like, let's say pancreatic cancer and some, maybe some other really challenging cancers because of technology, because of companies like Tempest out there doing this work that we're going to see significant breakthroughs in the next year to five years, maybe longer or shorter, I should say, because of like, we're just in this span and we're, we're kind of on this trajectory where we're coming around, I guess, to these massive, you know, in technology with AI, with data collection, because it hasn't been done before. Um, and the pioneers who started it 20, 30 years ago, now that stuff's starting to catch up. Yeah, I, I, I completely believe that. I, I, and I, I truly believe that. I, I think um, what will happen in cancer, I'll make some, some bold predictions, um, is for every cancer patient, uh, one of four things will happen. Uh, either we will um, prevent the cancer. So mm -hmm. uh, we're now beginning to understand that we can identify high risk, high risk, you mentioned BRCA, yeah. uh, there we're, you know, discovering more and more um, genes that um, uh, provide a propensity for uh, cancer development. Um, so we can begin to identify those individuals. And um, we're beginning to understand uh, some preventative measures that uh, can be incorporated into their lifestyle, it, it wouldn't, you know, dramatically change their lives, um, that would prevent the cancer. So that's one. Two, we're developing early detection tools um, that will be able to detect an early cancer, and this is especially pertinent for pancreatic cancer, um, that can be easily removed or easily addressed and will never develop into advanced disease. Uh, three, uh, we will, uh, for many patients, turn 
even advanced cancer into a chronic disease. Mm-hmm. And, and so if you look at um, even some cancers now uh, that were essentially death sentences uh, just a short time ago, um, met, certain forms of metastatic uh, non-small cell lung cancer um, mm-hmm. and patients are living many, many years, um, decades even, well, a decade, let's say, yeah. uh, where they're living with cancer, they're living relatively normal lives, and they, you know, be, have to begin to worry about getting their mammograms or their colonoscopies and watching their blood pressure because the cancer is not going to kill them. They have to, you know, they have to worry about these, you know, more routine, let's say, more mundane uh, health issues. And then, uh, and then a, a group of patients, and hopefully this group, the last group of patients, begins to uh, get bigger and bigger, and I believe it will, where we will cure a patient with advanced cancer. And I believe that to be true because I've seen it. Um, this is not just um, uh, a dream. This is not just imagination. This is the reality that's going on right now. Uh, I have patients, I still see patients in clinic um, once a week. And I have patients in my clinic who have no evidence of cancer, despite the fact that they had recurrent or metastatic disease, um, mm-hmm. were uh, at, at one point, you know, would have been given six to 12 months to live. And I'm seeing them seven or eight years later. And um, and they have no cancer. They have no evidence of disease. And and so this is happening. Um, we now we need to make it happen in more than just you know the the uh, uh, unusual or occasional patient. We need to make it happen mm-hmm. in the majority. But the fact that we can do it in one or two people, and it's obviously it's much more than that. Um, yeah. That means that that we can figure out how to do it in in a in the great in a majority of people. Yeah. It's, so it's so that's exciting. Where see, that's where I see cancer. And in, in terms of the timeline, uh, these things that I'm describing, they're going to happen in, in the next five years, certainly yeah. by the next 10 years. Uh, this is this is not, you know, one day, uh, 20 years down the road, 30 years down the road. This is going to happen in, in our lifetimes. It's exciting. I, I love hearing about it and love talking about it. Let, let's shift gears here a little bit, Ezra, and talk about clinical trials and, and what you guys are doing at Tempest with the yeah. clinical trials. Yeah. So yeah. let's talk so, a little bit about that. Where do you want yeah, to start with yeah. it? So, so first, you know, I'll say I'll I'll, I'll make a plug for clinical trials. Um, we will not do <laughs> what I just described yeah. if patients don't participate in clinical trials. And the sad reality, and this is you know, the, this is the genesis of the Tempest clinical trials mission. The sad reality of clinical trials in this country for adults is that three percent, three percent of adult cancer patients participate in clinical trials. We are just simply not going to make cancer go away if that number doesn't increase. Uh, put it into perspective, all the advances that we made in pediatric cancers, especially uh, pediatric blood cancers like leukemia, yeah. 90%, 90% of pediatric patients with ALL are cured today. Um, that was only accomplished through clinical trials. That same 90% number, that's the percentage of pediatric patients that participate in clinical trials. So if we're if we're going to move forward, we we just need more patients to enroll. Okay, that's my plug for clinical trials in general. But that leads to why Tempest started a clinical trials program or, or a study, what we call it the studies uh, business unit. And 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 it was really it, with a recognition that that number was so low and that um, clinical trials had to change. The, the whole paradigm had to change. 
And so one of the first things that we did was we uh, started what we call a just-in-time network, um, which basically means that instead of the paradigm of opening a clinical trial and waiting for a patient to become eligible, because we have connectivity with over 2,000 hospitals and uh, oncology clinics in the country, we realized that we could actually go through the medical records, the electronic health record, and we could identify patients who are eligible for clinical trials. And then once we find an eligible patient, we can then open the study at that site. So it, it flips everything around. Is Instead of waiting for people to show up, we know that they're there. We yeah. can open the study. And then the prov provider has a much simpler task of saying, hey, you know, Mr. Jones, I, I've got a great study for you. Do you want to participate? And if you do, I, it takes me uh, five to 10 days to open it. And, and so right. that's that's the just-in-time network and, and sort of the cornerstone of the clinical trials at, at, at Tempest. So I'm going to jump in here. I got to, because this is like right on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> so, and I'll just preface this. So, yeah, you're right. Like, so it's usually like just set up the trial, wait for people to come. But if you guys can identify people and know that the clinical trial is available for them, they are eligible, and then go to that site and say, hey, we want to open the trial because of X, or you have this many people, or you have these many. Okay, let me, ask, I'm going to ask, there's no such thing as a stupid question, but then this is no, not going to be no. an area here. Those are always the best. Why, why, why would it, why wouldn't the powers to be in our country that run clinical trials I think it's like nihgov.clinical backslash clinical trials. Why would they say, hey, this is like a no brainer? A, it benefits patients. Like, hey, Tempest, here's the entire universal database, or here's every partner that partners in clinicaltrials.gov. Go at it, have him. Yeah. Let me give you, I'll answer your question in a second, but let me give you one more nugget <laughs> that makes this attractive is let's say you've got a community site in, um, uh, you're, you're, you're in Boston. So let's say, um, what's the rough part of Boston is it's, uh, well, there's, there's South Boston. Uh, yeah. I'd say Southie. Okay. So, so sorry to South Boston. I mean, I'm sure it's, <laughs> I'm sure it's not that rough and I'll go visit, you know, next time I'm, I'm there, but, um, let's say you've got a, a, a clinic in South Boston serving, uh, you know, an under, underrepresented and underserved, right. uh, patient population. All of a sudden, they can have those patients can have access to clinical trials Correct. instead of having to go to Dana Farber or you know Mass General or or one of the large academic uh, medical centers that quite honestly it's going to they can't get to you know they're going to have a hard time getting there uh, and it's intimidating for them to go there so they can now go to their uh, the oncologist that they're seeing their local oncologist and that local oncologist all of a sudden has access to hundreds of studies for that patient that they would have never had access to so it increases access to clinical trials, and it increases, most importantly, the diversity of the patients that we enroll Correct. in clinical trials, so that they now represent the true U.S. population instead of the population that that makes it to the large academic medical centers. So that's another benefit. So, but to to answer your question, it's a few things. It's a few things. So first, in order for the system to work really well, um, it, or most efficiently, it, it requires not requires, but it it's augmented by connectivity 
to the electronic medical record. Uh, you, we can do things, computers can do things a lot more efficiently than humans can. Um, so, so that's one. And there's resistance to that. Um, uh, there's resistance yeah. uh, from a logistic perspective. There's there's fear uh, about uh, privacy and access and what we, we'll do with the data. And, and I can guarantee that um, we don't use the data for, uh, you know, for, for profit or, or anything like that. We, in, in this context, we use the data to try to put patients on, on clinical trials. But there's a fear around that. Um, and, and then there's also just like anything in medicine and any new technology, and, and I hate to say it, but medicine is a, is a field of slow adaptation, even though, you know, I, it, you'd think it would be different, but that's the reality. Um, uh, uh, institutions, the government, practitioners are slow to um, integrate new technology and um and and this is a new technology this is a disruptive technology it will happen i have no doubt about it because it's a better way to do it but but it, it will take time to get people on board i got so many of my own personal thoughts ezra and you gave a very professional and, and very good explanation of why it's not happening but i you know i once had one of a very world-renowned clinician who's a bench scientist tell me something very intriguing that you know there's ego you know and and i think there's also like there's some institutions that i mean we know we we fund a lot of institutions from around the world not just here in the country but that don't like to play with other people in the sandbox but i think you said something that i caught disruption like this is what you guys are you're disrupting the network and no one likes disruption no one likes change that's i mean we are founded on and then this is not a, a plug on project purple but like our we i started this thing because i wanted to disrupt the pancreatic cancer space because nothing was happening and i wanted to use running with that so i love that i mean th th this is awesome that you guys are doing that to me it's a no-brainer i mean technology i i know you were very kind to say like technology might be an issue maybe that's for some people but like i mean this is 2024 like everything's done via the computer via the phone so but to me like you bring up boston but i i'm thinking of a patient right here in my head a patient family that's in davenport iowa that you know is yeah. going to johns hopkins is going to penn for clinical trials like yeah. they don't need to do that like like this is like game changer man and and you know the the thing that is so and the other piece of this is as you said like you know three percent of patients are are in clinical trials and, and that's a big problem why they fail i think the space and I think some of this is institutionally as well. And I'm not trying to put blame on, um, you know, these large medical institutions, these, you know, these, these places, but I think there's like a education piece to it. I've never met though a, a pancreatic cancer family or patient that's going through the journey that's never said no to a clinical trial. It's always like, A, I can't find them. Which one can I get into? Or B or C, they don't qualify anymore. But the reason they don't qualify as you know, is they were never given the option up front, yeah. right? Yeah. It was never part of that roadmap wherever they started. Um, so, but like giving them this opportunity is so powerful. So, so powerful. And, and a complete game changer, as we know, sometimes. 
I, this is the reason we, this is we, the reason we started the effort is, is, is we truly believe that um, it has to be done differently. It's the only way we're going to make progress and the only way we're going to make change. And, and you're absolutely right. You know, it is rarely the patient that doesn't want to go on a clinical trial. I mean, if you present them with that option, um, they will, uh, I mean, I would say 90% of the time they will, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, say yes to, of course, if it's an appropriate study, but, Correct. Uh, and, and, you know, it should be, but, uh, but it's, but it's the other barriers that we put in the way. And, and, yeah. you know, I'll be frank. Uh, one of the barriers is that um, medical oncologists don't have time uh, in, in a busy clinic. And so one of the things, you know, that, and part of this effort is that we've tried to simplify the process. So we do a lot of work beforehand, the contracting, the approvals, we provide uh, people on the ground to help with uh, patient enrollment, uh, first patient identification, enrollment, and then uh, clinical trial management. We, we supply those people. Um, and so we, we've realized that uh, average medical oncologist in, in their practice doesn't have a, another hour to take uh, out of their clinic uh, and enroll a patient on a clinical trial. It's just, you know, if you leave it at that, it's not going to happen. And right. so- Let's break down those barriers so that um, we we make it easy. Yeah, but I agree and I disagree because I think some of these larger groups have someone on staff that can do that, right? Like it's yeah. like, but you know, it's it's just like any business or anyone. Like, I think change is hard. I go back to yeah. you know, you said this and disruption. No one wants to be that disruptor, but at least for the GI cancer space that we're in for pancreatic cancer, this is what we need. Like you gotta, like, this is, I say this all the time. You gotta think outside the box. If we're really going to make advancements or if we're really going to push this and, and really going to get better client uh, patient outcomes, I should say not clients, but patient outcomes, we've got to kind of be a little bit disruptive and, and we're not asking anyone to take anything that's not off brand. I mean, this is like a, such a value resource that potentially, you know, and I, I, it could be a, a huge game changer. And I know we we brushed on this a little bit, but you know, the immunotherapy piece is just such a frustrating piece here with pancreatic cancer. Yeah. But to your point, though, like we've got to put the work in. I think everyone always thinks like, hey, okay, this worked for this other disease, like it's going to work for us or this other cancer. But we, I don't think we've put enough work into it yet. Yeah, you know, and I know that's really rude and crude at a very high level, but that's how I see things. I think we just have not put the work in immunotherapy yet to to get it to where it needs to be for for pancreatic cancer. I I completely agree. I, I, and pancreatic cancer, you know, offers uh, again, as as you and I'm sure many of your listeners know, challenges with respect to immunotherapy that that other cancers don't have. Uh, you know, melanoma is sort of the uh, the, the prototype for immunotherapy, right. uh, the response rates uh, for uh, anti-PD-1, anti-PD-L1 are 50%. Uh, you, you've got 50% uh, survival, even in metastatic disease. I mean, it's just, you know, it's amazing. And then on the other end of the spectrum is, is, is pancreatic cancer with a relatively lower uh, tumor mutational burden, a much lower yeah. tumor mutational burden, um, a very fibrotic um, uh, tumor uh, where T cells have difficulty uh, penetrating, uh, a highly immunosuppressive uh, tumor microenvironment, and um, relatively few uh, neoantigen uh, targets. 
having said all that, <laughs> um, immunotherapy, I truly, truly believe can still work in pancreatic cancer. So um, we've now gotten to the point, I think, with pancreatic cancer, where we understand what the challenges are. And now we have to think about, okay, well, how do we knock down those hurdles one by one? Mm -hmm. There are a few neoantigens. Okay, well, let's identify the neoantigens that are relevant. There are ways that we can do that now. Um, it's a dense tumor microenvironment that, that T cells can't penetrate. Okay, well, what do we need to do to overcome that? Is it cytotoxic chemotherapy? Is it small doses of radiation? Is it some other modality? Let's overcome that. Is it um, getting T cells uh, uh, right to the tumor? Okay, we have we have modalities that can help uh, with that. Now, is it getting uh, is it activating those T cells uh, or, or reactivating those T cells? We have ways to do that. So, so it, you know, at every step in the process, um, we, there there are ways to do it. it. Gets back to, you know, we need to put on people on. You know, unfortunately, we need to test these in clinical trials. It's the only yeah. scientifically rigorous way we're going to get answers, and so. Um, we, we need to, to open up uh, these studies, but I'll give you, I'll give you an example, and this is not immunotherapy, but, but a trial where, you know, we can, we, we can see that these things, once we operationalize them, begin to work. We, we opened up a study um, in collaboration with GSK uh, with a PARP inhibitor, um, thinking that patients with PAL-B2 mutations, so a, a much rarer mutation, um, a relatively rare mutation, um, they may be responsive to this class of agents called PARP inhibitors. Um, and uh, sure enough, because PARP inhibitors aren't uh, approved for pancreatic cancer, uh, we had um, uh, a few pancreatic cancer patients enroll. And in fact, the only two patients that responded, the only two that responded on the study were pancreatic adenocarcinoma patients, to the point where now we're talking to GSK about actually doing a pancreatic adenocarcinoma study with, with their agent uh, because um, when, and you know, you would we would have never discovered this signal if if we didn't have all these things in place. So it, it can happen, and it will happen. It's exciting. I've got a couple questions here left, and then we're going to share with our audience where um, they can learn more. My first question, and I know we've talked about all the great things you guys are doing there at Tempest AI. I'm gonna what if. We've got a patient or a family member listening to this or watching this when this airs. Can they, let's say they're in, we'll use Miami, they're in Florida. Can they request to have sequencing by Tempest? Uh, they can. It it, it really, um, it should and, and almost needs to go um, through their provider. Um, okay. So probably the the, the best way to do it would be to talk to their provider, their, their medical oncologist, surgical oncologist, whoever that is, and um, and and they can or order the test uh, through Tempest. The, the nice thing about uh, Tempest um, is that we have everything under one roof. Uh, so we can do the next generation sequencing, the whole transcriptome, the liquid biopsy, uh, the germline genomics, uh, the immunohistochemistries. Um, so they, the provider doesn't have to go to, you know, different websites, different companies, it, it can all be done there. So nice and easy. And, and then Tempest does all the groundwork. Uh, we, you, we get the samples, we, we, there's, we can even go to the patient's home and, and draw the blood. So, so we try to make it as, as, as easy as possible. So, so that would be the, the easiest way. The other way is the patient can go to the Tempest website and, yeah. uh, uh, they, I don't think they, they actually can't request it on their own, but they can get the information again to, to help their provider request it. 
And knowledge is power. I always say, like, you know, the great thing about this podcast, like, you know, we 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 never tell people what to do, uh, but providing them access to the information. You guys have a great website, which we're going to share. We're, we're going to share some other links to uh, where they can find out more information is just so powerful. So they have that That's information. Exactly. I couldn't agree with you more. The more we know, the better off we are. Correct. Uh, Correct. The, the better we are able to make the right decisions. I mean, it, you, if you don't have it, you, there's no way you can, you can make the, the most informed decision. It's just no way. Correct. And, and, you know, and then I go back to maybe from your clinical days, you know, the, the, it's really the, like, it's, I think like the system has become like, if you don't ask, you don't tell them things. Right. Like, and, and I always say to patients, like, here's the information, but you've got to ask the information. Right. So like, here we are like, Hey, you guys ha- are doing all these great things, but patient and their family still have to advocate for themselves. Oh, absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. Second part of that question, and this, again, relates to the patient. So, again, this clinical trials piece is just phenomenal. Like, how do patients and their families get more information, or can they go to the website, or or do they have to go through clinicians? It sounds like they could probably come direct, maybe? They can They can certainly find out about what's going on uh, at, at the website. We have a... a- uh, a tab for for research and and uh, you know appropriate pull down menus so so they can certainly find out on the Tempest website. Um, the what we have to do is we have to um, uh, get clinics uh, into our system into the network. Yeah. Um, and 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 we're working on that you know quite actively. We have a uh, an entire team that that's all they do. They they go to. Uh, hospital systems, clinics, et cetera, and they, you know, try to encourage them to to join our network. Um, the network doesn't cost the system anything, uh, zero cost to them, and and you know we try to offer you know as many advantages and resources as as possible. So we try to. I think it's it's quite attractive, but obviously they have to you know they have to agree. <laughs> Is there a way then on the website that you guys list the relationship, the clinical relationships that you have around the country? There is there is a place on the website where where that's uh, where that's listed. Yeah. So if patients are in those geographical areas yeah. and maybe they're yeah. you know, we, we by cover, automatically going, yeah, they the, would know. we cover almost the entire country. There's uh, um, it, it, the network now is over three hundred. Um, uh, uh, centers or, or clinics. Uh, so, uh, we, we don't cover the mountain States that well, uh, I'll, I'll yeah. admit we're still, you know, trying to get, trying to penetrate there. Uh, fortunately the population is, is relatively low there, but, but still we yeah. be in those areas. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, it, um, we, we're, we're, uh, uh, pretty well across the country. Awesome. Awesome. Like I said before, like, this is like, to me, a no-brainer. I know there's like, you know, challenges in between there, you know, with the way that we're doing clinical trials, um, you know, has not worked. Um, you know, the, the, this, the system is broken. Yeah. And I don't think, you know, we, we've talked often on the podcast about the systems, right? And I go back to what you said from being a disruptor. Um, I don't think you can ever change a system, but you could disrupt a system, right? And provide that service or what you guys are doing to change how we do this. And eventually the tide will turn. Right. Um, And I I think, you know, again, I said this knowledge is power. So by providing this to the patients, it's just a no brainer. It's so powerful. Eventually what's going to happen is you're going to have patients like saying, 
okay, I'm not going to go to this center. I'm going to go to that center because I know they're affiliated with Tempest. And I know my I'm going to have access, hopefully potentially, to all these clinical trials. So it's just really, really awesome work. I can't thank you enough, Ezra, for all the work that you're doing and all the great works that Tempest AI is doing to, you know, not only GI cancer and pancreatic cancer in particular, because that's the space we live in, but all cancers as a whole. It's got to be really cool to go to work every day. Oh, I, I love it. And and the people I get to work with a lot smarter than I am, let me tell you. <laughs> it's it, it, it's such a pleasure. And it's it's really and and you feel like honestly, you know, th- there's a passion to to the mission. You, know, you we really feel like we're making a difference. And and that's you know, there, there's nothing more satisfying than that. So awesome. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you here on the podcast. Our last thing here, uh, we'd love to share with our audience kind of the best place if they do want to learn more about Tempest um ai where's the best place i know we talked a little bit about that before we hit record but why don't we give that to the audience here yeah it, it is uh the tempest website it's uh, tempest.com uh just remember it's not tempest it's uh, spelled t-e-m-p-u-s tempest uh and either either the website or on uh, linkedin awesome dr cohen thank you for being a guest on the project purple podcast okay my pleasure again thanks very much Thank you for listening to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. If you liked today's episode, please share this episode and follow the Project Purple Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. Thanks for listening. Until next time, please be safe. Hey.